Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. We're back for another special episode of the Podium and Panel Podcast. In this episode, episode 21, Dan and I are speaking with Kevin O'Connor of the O'Connor Law Firm, where his practice centers on representing individuals and families in complex personal injury, wrongful death, survival, 1983 civil rights violations, specifically police brutality, misconduct, and medical malpractice actions. We're here to talk today with Kevin uh, about a case he argued last week before the Illinois Appellate Court First District of Robinson versus Village of Sauk Village. Uh, Kevin, let's get right to it. Uh, the argument got into the legal issues. And while we were kind of generally able to figure out what was going on, this was something about a police chase and your guy got hit by somebody during that chase. Can you kind of lead us off by telling us about the facts? What, what precipitated this chase and where your guy fit into this? Sure. So what happened is it was back on August 10, 2017. Um, this Mr. Coffee uh, was a guy who stole a vehicle. Uh, he There was a report of a stolen vehicle that went into Sauk Village. Sauk Village went over the radio and reported the type of vehicle it was. Um, one of these officers identified um, the vehicle and said, oh, I think I have the stolen vehicle. He did a U-turn in the middle of the street and started to pursue his vehicle. Um, he then went on, there went on for a long 18 minute high speed chase that went into Indiana, out of Indiana, through Sark Village, through the uh, town of Crete. Came yeah, I, I heard references during the argument to Indiana at one point and Crete was a defendant. And so good, thank you. This is This is very helpful. And so what ended up happening is he, he like got away from them once, went into Indiana, came back. They caught up with him again. Um, Sauk Village started the pursuit. Um, they're pursuing him at high rates of speed. The officers, so one of the interesting thing is that officers, when they're in a, involved in a high-speed chase, are supposed to report to the state as to the speeds that they were traveling. And the reasons for that is to um, uh, notify the state of like high-speed chases for their documentation purposes, what were officers doing for training purposes. They wrote in their reports that their speed was like 40 or 50 miles an hour. Um, and, and, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it turned out that they admitted in their depositions to doing 90 and 100 um, going into oncoming traffic. Um, we actually have video of from one of the vehicles, the third officer in line um, who was pursuing the vehicle, actually videoing them in oncoming traffic going down the street um, with traffic coming in the opposite direction. Um, they were, it ended, you're not supposed to have, according to their local regulations, you're not supposed to have more than two officers in a pursuit. They had three. Then they had officers, what they call paralleling, which is traveling on an opposite road in the same direction. That's a violation of their procedures. Um, what ended up happening is uh, he started drifting he, around. He, he coffee? 
it, no, so yes, coffee. Sorry, coffee's driving around. They're chasing him everywhere. Finally, he gets so far ahead of him. He's more than a quarter mile ahead of him. He's headed toward Indiana. He makes a left turn in a church parking lot and stops. And the officers said, at that point, we figured he's gone. We're not going to pursue him anymore. You know, he's on his way to Indiana. If he would have just kept going, we would have stopped the chase was their story. Even though technically at the at the church, he's in Indiana and the officers from Creek, Sauk Village all came up on him once he stopped in the church parking lot, including two officers from the county. OK, so everybody and this was like I, I joke, it's like Smokey and the Bandit. You know, somebody stole a vehicle or ran a red light. And you got him chasing him across states and everything else. Um you know, or Dukes of Hazard. I guess the the local people might understand a little better if I'm dating myself. You know, they're chasing them over something. They're the same vintage. Same vintage. Well, there's a recent there's a recent uh, Dukes of Hazard with younger people, so they might remember that one. So they re- remaked it. So, but anyway, they're chasing them over something minor, and yet they're putting the entire community at risk. And so. There's a couple statutes in Illinois that are really at relevant, and then we'll get back to the facts. But really what happened is he stops in the lot. The police get out. They draw guns. One even drew an, you know, an AR-15 rifle, a little excessive, but come broaching the car, never got more than 10 feet of him. They yell at him, show us your hands. He starts grabbing a water bottle and gesturing out the window like he was going to throw water at him. Just kind of idiotic. Um he and, did just lead them on a on a hundred mile an hour chase. So idiotic. See, I mean, throwing water at him seems to be the least of the idiotic things this guy came up with. So probably, probably. I mean, you know, argument from the defense might be he was trying to get them. You know, he said, "Just shoot me, just shoot me," like it was like suicide by police or whatever. He was going through some kind of crisis. I mean, we don't know, but because ultimately. Um, I'll tell you the story, but ultimately he got killed in Indiana by the Indiana um, state police um, when this chase ultimately ended. Um, so he, he was shot to death. Coffee was in the end of this. So he's in that parking lot. The police approach the vehicle. They never surround it. They never get within more than 10 feet of the driver's side as they're facing him. He ends up getting a little tired of playing the cat and mouse game because they didn't shoot him. So he throws it in drive and drives away. <laughs> and then they all jump back in their cars and start chase him again. There's nothing behind him, nothing to the side, nothing in front of him. Um, as he's driving away, he's again doing 100 miles an hour oncoming traffic. He goes into a residential neighborhood where it's 25 mile an hour zone. Is he back in Illinois at this point? Or is he oh, yeah, in- he's in Illinois. He's in uh, Stock Village, then back in Crete. Um He's going through a residential neighborhood. It's 25 mile an hour zone. He's blowing through stop signs. The police are following him, blowing through stop signs. Um, and now it's five. Are they at least have lights and sirens on during all this? Uh, on and off. Some do, some don't. You, you definitely had lights, but not too many sirens. I think they didn't want to wake people up. I don't know. It's what, five, what time of day is it? Did it occur? 5.18, 5.17 in the morning is when ultimately they hit my client, but so he drives into this residential neighborhood. It's time for people to start getting up and going to work, right? So he apparently had set this up that he had another car waiting. So Mr. Coffee drives up, jumps out of the car and jumps into another car where it had keys in it and then takes off again. And um, the officers kind of try and come at him, but they never really surrounded him. And he took off. Um, and as he took So this off, is the second time they've surrounded him. Second. But they didn't surround him. No, not, not surrounded. Wrong word. Second time they... 
kind of get near him. A yes. U-shape or something, whatever whatever they were doing. So as the one policeman got out and start, the guy who started it all, Rinchich, I think it was his name, he got out of the vehicle to come and approach him. He didn't realize he had keys in that car. And he takes takes off in this new vehicle. The other officer was coming from the opposite direction. He just basically did a UE and then followed him as he passed by him. Okay. And about three blocks away, um, Coffee runs over my client who is simply on his way to the bus stop to go to work at 515 in the morning, crossing with the light. He blew the light, ran him over. And you can see from the, and he really, really was hurt. I mean, he has several hundred thousand of medical, massive orthopedic injuries. He's disabled really for life. Um, They then, you can see from the officer who was still filming, who was like third in line, you can see one officer take a right with the lights on, still chasing after our client was hurt. And then he comes up and because people are flagging him down that this man's laying in the street. So the chase had not ended at that point when our client had got hurt. Um, and so then coffee goes off to Indiana. Ultimately, the Indiana Troopers, um, uh, Isburn Radio goes statewide caught up with him and eventually he didn't succumb to them and they shot him and um, he ended up dying in, in Indiana. So um, that's the facts. A lot, lot of parties involved and who did you sue and were they all only entities or did you sue the Indiana? No, Indiana well? had nothing to do with it. So really it was, you know, cause Indiana never really chased him. He went into Indiana and then he came back here, but all the events that really happened, happened in Illinois that relate to our client and so we sued Sauk Village, the uh, officer Rinchich and and his um, his supervisor. So we sued each of the officers that were pursuing the chase from each village, and then their supervisors who were also involved, but oftentimes making the call as to whether or not to call off the chase or keep the chase going. And you you said some of those actually went into Indiana from Sauk Village and Crete. Those police. Well, the only place they went into Indiana that I'm aware of is right there at the church parking lot. The church parking lot was technically in Indiana. Right. And so what was the nature of the cause of action that you filed? Did you originally file in federal court? Did you seek to file civil rights claims or did you just bring tort, tort uh, you know, ordinary nor- tort claims? Yeah, ordinary tort claims in the circuit court of Cook County. Um, and, and the reason is because police chase cases really aren't a federal um, case because they weren't doing anything against our client wasn't a prisoner. Our client wasn't subject to police custody. He was just an innocent victim out on the street. So in that situation, you don't have a civil rights violation or anything like that. What you have is a straight negligence claim that's against the police officers for under section two dash two Oh two, you have to prove willful and wanton conduct. Um, under the Tort Immunity Act, which says that officers are immune from their actions in the course and scope of their employment unless they act with willful and wanton misconduct. And with that, we'll take our first break and be back. We're back with segment two of episode 21. And we're talking today with Kevin O'Connor of the O'Connor Law Firm and talking about the case Robinson versus Village of Sauk Village. Kevin, we want to ask you about the defense that the defendants asserted. What role did they bring it under? What was the result before the trial court? And what was the trial court's reasoning for that result? Sure. So they they actually brought it under several sections, but primarily under 4-106B. 
um, states that if the police are, uh, if there's an escaping prisoner and the escaping prisoner causes injury to a third innocent party, like Mr. Robinson, that the police are completely immune from any lawsuit related to an escape or escaping prisoner. Um, that is the primary and the secondary one they did with probably less force, as they said, 2 202. Um, they said that the, the facts of this case didn't amount to willful and wanton conduct such that the officers could be held liable. Um, Justice, and- I think it was Justice Hoffman didn't think much of that uh, when he talked about the speed and going on the wrong side of the road and all the rest. You got there. I mean, he helped me out a little bit. I, I remembered all the facts and I forgot to talk about the speed where he goes, and they were doing 100 miles an hour. And I said, yeah, I forgot about that one, too. But yeah, <laughs> doing so many things. Um, you know, in the previous cases that have come out of the first district um, that talked about what is and is not willful and wanton uh, conduct, uh, really, it was this was much greater than any of those cases. They had me talk about that briefly. But the real focus was 4-106B. And what does it mean? Right. I mean, that's really. So, so let's let's just read it so everyone knows what it says. And 406, 4-106 is neither a public entity nor a public employee. So the village itself or its employees that were defendants is liable for B, any injury inflicted by an escaped or escaping prisoner. So I, I Dan asked about what did they bring this as a 615, a 619, a 619.1? Was it a 1005? Was it a motion for summary judgment? How did they? What judgment was a motion for? Okay, so after you guys had finished some discovery, it sounded like you guys had done depositions and whatnot. Yeah, we did all of our discovery. We actually, as part of responding to the motion, hired an uh, an expert in suit and actually had to file an affidavit in support of what you know what happened here. So what what did the who was the trial judge and what was there? What was the ruling of the of the trial court on that motion for summary judgment? So Melissa, uh, Judge Melissa Durkin. Um, the motion judge read all the briefs, um, came out. It, it seemed like she had a pre-printed like kind of decision already made. So we had argument, but she wasn't, uh, I, I made a comment, but I, I'll tell you, she just basically said, I find that uh, no person in, in Mr. Coffee's situation would feel free to leave. Um, and therefore I think 4-106B applies under Townsend, the case of Townsend. And therefore, I'm granting it. And I said, well, judge, respectfully, you're only that's only half the test. It's only half the test. And I said, uh, you got to talk about the other freedom of movement was directly controlled or curtailed. Um, She did not have an answer and just said, well, that's my ruling. And then I said, well, judge, hypothetically, do you realize what you're saying here is any person who sees Mars lights or police lights in their rearview mirror? is not going to feel free to leave. And you're telling me every one of those people are an escaping prisoner, then we're never going to have a police chase again ever um, in Illinois. I mean, you're basically saying they're absolutely immune if they turn their lights on. And she said, well, I don't have that factual situation in front of me and I'm not going to answer. Well, Mr. Coffey certainly uh, didn't think he was uh, contained. He was free (laughs) to roam about the country or counties, right? Because at 100 miles an hour, he sure as heck didn't feel constrained. So what what do you, Kevin, what was your argument as to what the appropriate test is and where does that test come from? So the Illinois Supreme Court in Reese. um, And that's R-E-I-S, folks. Correct. um, Made made a decision um, in a case where they said 
hey, look, here, here's what happened. They got a, they pulled the guy over. They put him in the, it was an unmarked car. They put him in the back of the unmarked car. It didn't have one of those plexiglass windows for people to prevent them from, you know, getting out or jumping in the front seat or attacking an officer. So the person is already put in the back of the car by the police officer. He jumps over to the front seat, throws the car in gear, takes off and runs somebody over. And the court said, well, he was an escaping, he was held in custody. And the the term is held in custody constitutes an escaping prisoner. We think under all of the various tests that you look at, even though he wasn't technically in the station or, you know, in prison, it's good enough that once the police officer placed him in the back of the squad car, he's held in custody. And they said there's a two-part test. One, a reasonable person would not feel free to leave. Um, And they said certainly he would not feel free to leave once the police grabbed him and threw him in the back of the car. And then the second part of the test was his freedom of movement had been directly controlled or curtailed, um, even though unsuccessfully, right? So they curtailed his freedom of movement by placing him in the back of the car, and he took off. So the court granted summary judgment in that case and said the person who got injured down the road from his driving, they're not liable for it. Now, what happened, what are the facts of of, uh, Townsend, which is, I think, the more recent of the two cases that were principally docked about at the uh, oral argument? And so Townsend actually came out, ironically, 30 days before, 30, sorry, the Townsend decision came down and 30 days later, they filed this motion for summary judgment. Um, okay. So the defense said, hey, Townsend's an expansion of Reese. It's, it's, it's actually saying all you need is to uh, direct, you don't need this two-part test. You will look more to the 14th Amendment search and seizure law that more relates to saying if the person does not feel free to leave, um, that therefore they could be liable under that. That's how they interpreted it, right? That it's just simply your freedom of movement is um, not really relevant. But that's really not what Townsend said. So the facts in Townsend is police are pulling over a vehicle. They surround the vehicle on the driver and passenger side. They take out the driver and handcuff the driver. They take out the passenger and there's two backseat passengers they didn't get to yet, right? And they said, well, under the law, under the seizure laws, that once you take control of a vehicle and you directly take out the driver, you have control over the whole vehicle. Um, And again, that backseat passenger jumps over into the front seat. The officer grabs at him, doesn't successfully grab him. He puts it in drive, takes off, runs somebody over. And they said, yeah, this is analogous to Reese. Um, it meets the two-part test. Um, and I'll get to that in a second. And, and therefore, it's absolute immunity. And the reason they focused on, so they focused on in the actual oral argument, the focus on that case was that they were grabbing at him. And the lawyer who was for the plaintiff in that case said, well, you just can't believe the officers, their story is not true. And the court said, well, you don't have any evidence to contradict it. So Therefore, he was grabbing at him or trying to he got his hands on him. And that was kind of the focus of oral argument. But in the decision itself, they focused on the fact that they positioned themselves on both sides of the vehicle. They you know, took the driver and passenger out. They directly limited the movement of the vehicle um, for some period of time. Therefore, they met the two part test. Um, one, they weren't feel free to leave. And two, they directly curtailed their movement and therefore they held they were held in custody. So that was really the focus of Townsend. And they're now saying, well, the facts here are like the facts in Townsend. 
Um, the defense is trying to say, well, when they approached him, nobody feels free to leave when you approach with guns. And they're saying, hey, this is even more than Townsend because they didn't draw their guns. Just showing your guns to somebody, you feel more confined or less free to leave than if you surround a vehicle. Um, did, did, they ever, did they ever explain why they didn't surround the vehicle? Uh, no. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that it would make sense, right? I, I think they really there certainly were enough of them. Yeah, all, all, everywhere. I mean, literally, I think the police were just coming at him from the one direction. Um, given the fact of how high they were drawing guns, they didn't, I, I think in their mind, they didn't know whether he had a gun or didn't have a gun or what he was doing or show us your hands, but he was showing his hands. So he obviously didn't have a gun. Um, and, or he, or if he did, he wasn't, wasn't about to use it. it didn't yeah. Or, you know, it was hidden under the seat or something. Um, it, you know, if they, so the interesting part about all that is, if they would have shot into the vehicle and shot him or, or did something, we know under the, current U.S. Supreme Court case, right, um, he would have been probably determined to have been held in custody at that point, right? Because And, it, and with that, let's come back and talk about Madrid versus Torres that uh, Kevin brought up just now and also at the argument and how that decision that was handed down March 25th, uh, not so long ago, might uh, plays into this case. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. So, Kevin, when we left off, uh, we were talking about Madrid versus Torres and tell us about Madrid versus Torres. How it came down for you, I think fortuitously a couple days before the argument and how you use that at the argument to bolster your and distinguish the situation that you have. What are the facts of Torres and how does it play into your case? And you think distinguish it from uh, the Townsend and Reese cases. So Madrid versus Torres was actually the opposite of what's being argued here. So I, I wanna make sure that everybody understands when you assert an immunity, the burden is on the defendant to prove the immunity and the courts strictly construe the immunity because it's per, it's giving them absolute like blanket. You can't be liable for anything, even willful and wanton conduct. And therefore it's a, it's a strict construction of the law, a high burden that goes on the state, the city, the municipality when they're trying to prove it. On the other end, when you talk about the 14th Amendment and search and seizure, they really kind of strain themselves to find if somebody's um, in custody or if somebody's considered to be held in custody or seized um, under the law because they're really protecting people's rights. So Madrid versus Torres was kind of the opposite argument being done by the municipality that said, hey, um, the, this woman got in a car. This woman took off. Police never surrounded it, but they shot at the vehicle and actually hit her and actually slowed her down. But ultimately, it didn't prevent her from getting away, but it certainly curtailed her ability to move. 
And what they said is, well, curtailed her ability to move. She went 75 miles to the next town and went to the hospital. It's New Mexico now. So (laughs) (laughs) but it did slow her down. I mean, they did say it slowed her down at least momentarily, right? Yeah, well, okay, yeah, that's right. The bullet went into her. Yep, that's true. I mean, it was pretty bad, right? I mean, obviously she got life flighted back to to Texas, right? No, no, back to Albuquerque. Albuquerque, that's right. Albuquerque. So she got life flighted back so that they can like arrest her after they remove the bullet. Right. So, um, but the real question was because they said, we can well, laugh because we're not the ones that got shot. True. true. So under the seizure analysis, she was arguing, Hey, I was seized <laughs> and they violated my rights. And the, the, the state or the, the, the municipality say, no, she wasn't because we never put our hands on her. We never surrounded her. <laughs> we didn't do anything. And the, the court said, wait, wait a minute. You know what I mean? It, whether you touch somebody with your hand or you shoot them with a gun, it's kind of like the old, you know, battery. If it's an extension of your hand, if you shoot at somebody, it's still a battery. It's like as if you put your hand on them. It, it was an extension of their body. It's no different than if you grab at somebody than if you shoot them. Right. I mean, you you essentially grab that at them. They had squeezed her for the purposes of the Fourth Amendment that could potentially support the 1983 action that she brought now, whether qualified immunity applies or something else applies, they they just simply argued she hadn't been seized because she went 75 miles away. Right. And the court said, oh, no, no, she had been seized. She had reason to believe she wasn't allowed to leave and they had touched her and restricted her even if they had been unsuccessful. And that's the. That's it. And, and But the most important part about that is the defense in their briefs, in our case, in Robinson. They said, look, Townsend used the analogy of the seizure laws under under the Fourth Amendment. And they didn't they they said because of that analysis, we should try and more equate this with seizure. And at the time, as you know, before the Torres decision uh, came down, there was kind of a split as to whether or not a reasonable reasonably not feeling free to leave was enough under seizure. Um, without somebody actually succumbing to that or some direct control over their movement or, you know, some some aspect. And the court said, oh, no, you've got to have that two part test even under the seizure law. And the interesting part about Townsend is Townsend said um, we're not even equating uh, in custody or held in custody uh, for an escaping prisoner with seizure law. They specifically said that. So they weren't even going that far. And yet the defense in our case wanted to expand it to equate to seizure, but that failed even if you did expand it because the Torres decision said you need more than that. To to have, because the issue in this case is whether the person is an escaped or escaping prisoner. That's the, that's the, that's the question in the case. Is this person a quote prisoner as it's been defined? If they haven't even been seized, how could they possibly be a prisoner? Right. In order to get the approached. Right. Well, a show of authority is not enough, is what the court basically said, is you've got to have the next step where either somebody succumbs to the authority or you you do some kind of physical either attempt to restrain their movement. Right. I mean, you've got to do one or the other. So in the situation, you you can have somebody held in custody if they succumb to your authority. For example, I I come up to you and the, the Mars lights are on. You pull, you curb the vehicle. I get out. You Two officers surround the vehicle. Hey, can you give me your ID? They see that there's a gun on the seat. They get nervous and they drive off. There could be an argument that, hey, at that point, they're an escaping prisoner. They surrounded the vehicle. They told them you're not free to leave. And they succumb to the authority. 
But if I just simply turn on the lights and as I wait for the policeman to get out of the car, I take off, <laughs> you know, nobody's succumbed to authority at that point. Nobody's been surrounded. They, they've, they've, enca- they've engaged in a ploy to get yeah. an advantage in getting away from the police, but the police haven't gotten them yet. Right. Would be your argument. And so what I pointed out to the court at the end is, is I say, look, you're, you're, you're holding, we're, not, we're now trying to, the defense is trying to expand immunities at a time in our country, in a time in our state where we want to hold police officers accountable, especially if they're acting willful and wanton, which is with intentional act or with reckless disregard for the safety of the public. That is not, we're not trying to limit that more. In fact, there's legislation trying to expand that, right, to to absolve all of these immunities. Um, but we don't, we can look to existing law to say, let's not expand what we have, which is what the defense was asking to be done here. And in light of what's going on in the community, I said, look, this man deter- is, I still have to prove that the officers acted with willful and wanton conduct with reckless disregard for the safety of the public. And a jury has to agree with me. I'm just asking for his day in court to go to trial. I'm not asking, you know, they're asking for the court to say, well, as a matter of law, the jury, you know, uh, the community doesn't get to decide if the officer's actions were willful and wanton or outrageous in this case. You know, you don't even get your chance in court, which is, you know, a whole new level. And, and it, it's just not fair. I mean, in this scenario. So, so Kevin, if you prevail and get a reversal uh, uh, at the appellate level, what standard must you show uh, to prevail when you get your chance in court that you just mentioned? So I still have to prove that the officers acted intentionally to hurt my client. I don't think they did, right? I mean, we all can say that. I don't think they had bad intent, but they had to act with reckless disregard for the safety of the public and my client. And when you drive 100 miles an hour into oncoming traffic, you blow through stop signs at 518 in the morning when you know people are on their way to work. You're chasing a man for over 18 minutes through two states and four different jurisdictions, when you're you're blowing through red lights, when you're, you know, I mean, it's just, it just goes on and on and on. You know, do you have a reasonable expectation that somebody may get hurt if you continue to chase this man for just a stolen vehicle? And the answer is obviously yes. And in their depositions, these officers said, yeah, it was going through my mind at one point that somebody could get hurt. <laughs> you know, so I've got them to admit to that. Well, you know, the other fact you mentioned in the first segment was that in the logs, they put down 40 to 50 miles per hour, which they obviously, you know, if you're going 40 or 50 miles an hour right after the incident. I mean, that seems to be a telltale sign that that brings it back into we weren't acting recklessly. Right. We were just going 40 to 50, a little bit over the speed limit. But uh, and then the depositions, you got to admit. Yeah, right. Right. And I'll tell you an interesting fact that came out of the depositions that's nowhere probably that's cited in the record. But all of these officers got together with the police chief that morning and went to breakfast to talk about what happened before they filled out their reports. Shocking. Yeah, <laughs> very shocking. Together and have breakfast like it was like no big deal, like you're having a meal. You know, I, I mean, I, I can see you being called into the chief's office or something, but to go have breakfast and act like, oh, another just another day. You know, somebody, one of your residents got run over and, you know, you were chasing somebody for 18 minutes. I mean, it's just uh, really, really sad. And somebody like paid attention to these reports to purposely try and hide the speeds they were traveling, the, the right. laws they were violating. I mean, it's just really, really sad. And it's an important case right now because I think the defense bar has read Townsend and said, we can use this as a weapon. 
not as a it's it's meant as a shield, but they're using it as a sword. You know, it's supposed to protect them in the limited circumstances where somebody's held in custody. The right. statute actually uses the word "held in custody," and I pointed out to the court. You know, in custody, they could have used just the words in custody, but they decided to use held in custody. Well, how was this man ever held? He was never right. held. You know, right. so we're, we're in a very unique situation. We had, it's a it's a pretty conservative court that I was facing this panel in the um, appellate court. Justice Hoffman was actually my Illinois civil pro teacher back 30 years ago. So when I was in law school. And I can he's a he's a very smart man. He really knows the facts and the law when he discusses something. He's also very conservative, but he seemed to be understanding he's a student of the law. So sure. I really hope when him and the other justices are looking at this, that they really figure out that Reese did set forth this two part test. I'm not conceding part one, which is he wasn't free to you know feel free to leave. But the part two that they actually limited his freedom of movement is really not been addressed and and the defense really didn't have any answer for it. I mean, they really didn't. Well, Kevin, uh, on behalf of Dan, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, and uh, good luck uh, on, uh, on the decision, which will come out, you know, who knows when, but uh, argument was just last week. Uh, good luck on that. And uh, with that, we'll close episode 21 and look forward to our regular episode this Sunday, episode 22. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.